Right, we're going to start a new series. We're looking um, Mark chapter, really at Mark chapter 11 through 13. Um, it's a really interesting chapter, a really interesting section of Mark. It's all about what happens when Jesus arrives as God's promised king. So we've been singing a lot tonight about Jesus being the king. And at the time of Jesus, that's what they expected of him. They expected him to be uh, the king. They expected him to be the Messiah or, or Christ. That just means promised king. And Mark 11 to 13 is all about what happens when Jesus arrives as king and establishes the kingdom of God. And it is totally not what people expected it to be. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next few evenings. But we're going to begin tonight by looking at Mark chapter 10. Because Mark 10 comes at the end of a section in Mark's gospel in which he explains to us what it looks like for us to follow Jesus as king. So before we go on to see how how Jesus establishes God's kingdom, we'll see tonight how we as kingdom people should live. And again, it is completely radical. It's completely topsy-turvy. That's why I've called tonight's sermon the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom. So let's look at uh, what Mark has to say about following Jesus as king. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, that is the disciples and Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve, again he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I wonder if um, if I was to come up to you tonight after the service and to ask you, what would you like me to do for you? Anything you want, what would you like me to do for you? Now, you're all very polite uh, and nice middle-class Edinburgh people, so you probably wouldn't uh, take me up on such an offer. But I wonder, what would you say if God himself were somehow to speak to you tonight and to ask you that very question, to make you that very same offer? What if God, the ruler and creator of the entire universe who knows everything that's going on in your life, what if he were to say to you tonight, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder what you'd say wonder what you would ask of God if he was to ask you that here tonight. Think about it, because how you would answer that question is actually very revealing into how you would view yourself, into how you would view God. And this is the question. This is the question that Jesus will pose to three men in tonight's passage. He wants to know what it is that they want from him. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, wants to ask these three men, what is it you want from me? The first two men he speaks to are his closest friends and followers, James and John. Notice what he says to them, verse 35. What do you want me to do for you? The third man, very different. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And if you look at verse 51... Jesus asked him the same question. What do you want me to do for you? Asked them both the same question, and he gets two very different answers. Now this passage, as I said, it comes at the end of a section in Mark that began way back in chapter 8 that is all about what it means for us to follow Jesus as king. And in the response to these two questions, we get a very important teaching about what it means to follow Jesus as king. We could sum it up by saying this. Um, when I was at Cornhill, we were told always to have one main bullet line application, uh, and your whole sermon had to be tied to it. So this is the bullet line application. Following Jesus means following him on the path of the cross and humble service. Following Jesus means following him on the path of the cross and humble service. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, three examples in Mark 10. I've got them outlined on the back of your service sheet. Three examples that will help us get our head round what it means to be part of this uh, topsy-turvy kingdom of Jesus. Firstly, the self-serving sons of Zebedee. Secondly, the self-sacrificing son of man. And thirdly, the exemplary son of Timaeus. I'm sorry that third point doesn't start with an S. 
I spent ages trying to think of an S, and it probably means this talk won't be as good as it could have been because I wasted so much time thinking about that. But that's the three uh, sections of Mark that we're going to look at tonight. So let's look at the first one, the self-serving sons of Zebedee. It's James and John. They come to Jesus uh, with an outrageous request. Look, look at, first of all, how they address Jesus. Verse 32. Um, we, oh, sorry, verse 35. Teacher, it starts off quite respectful. Um, then they say this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So here we have Jesus Christ. If you've been reading through Mark's gospel, um, then you would know that Mark's been telling us Jesus is the, the promised Messiah. He's the Son of God. God come down to us in the flesh. And here you have his two followers saying this statement to him. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's an outrageous request. Essentially, they're asking Jesus to uh, sign for them a blank check. What does Jesus say in response? How dare you say that to me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you're speaking to? No, Jesus says this. Okay, what do you want me to do for you? Amazing. Here's the request, verse 37. Grant us to set one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, what, what do they mean by this? It's important for us as we read this to try and understand how the disciples view Jesus uh, at this point in, in following him, at this point in Jesus' life. The, the disciples believed Jesus was the Christ. They, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was this promised king that the Old Testament scriptures talked about. They believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises. He was standing there in front of them, God's great king, but their understanding of what that meant was totally different to what Jesus was actually like. They, they thought Jesus was going to be this, this kind of warrior who would come to liberate Israel, to liberate them from the oppression of the Romans, this great ruler like King David in the Old Testament. They had a totally skewed understanding of what God's Messiah would look like. And we see this in Mark. We see this actually at the start of this section in the teaching of discipleship in Mark chapter 8 with the Apostle Peter. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. He's congratulated for, for having that insight. Um, but then Jesus says to him what he's going to do as the Christ. Jesus says to Peter, he says, that's great that you've got that. Now I want you to know that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and that I am going to die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and then three days later, I will rise. And Peter's having none of that. He takes Jesus aside, and Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, that's not going to happen. We won't let that happen to our king. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter doesn't get it. James and John here they don't get it either. When they talk about being with Jesus in glory, they're not talking about some heavenly reality. They're talking about being with Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem as this conqueror that will come to liberate the Jewish people. That's what they think, and that's what they want. They want to be there at that moment when the Messiah enters Jerusalem. They want to be there beside his throne, elevated to his status 
elevated to the same kind of greatness. But Jesus, Jesus has already told them, the path to Jerusalem is not a path to glory and greatness as they would have seen it, but it's a path of pain and death. Verse 33, look at what he says. He says this to them right before this request. This is why it's so outrageous. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, as Jesus termed for himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. For James and John, it just doesn't sink in. Jesus asked them, do you think you can drink the cup that I am drinking and be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? That's just another way of Jesus using imagery to talk about his suffering. So he's essentially saying to them, do you really think that you can come with me down this path and suffer the way that I am going to suffer? They say, yeah, we can do that. But they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea the kind of suffering that Jesus will face when he enters Jerusalem. Jesus says to them, oh yeah, you will suffer if you follow me. You will suffer. It won't be the same kind of suffering that Jesus faces. That's unique to him. But James and John, if they go down this road, it will be a road of suffering. These men don't quite get that to follow Jesus is to follow the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is not a way of triumphant exaltation, but a way of painful humiliation. That's the path that the disciple of Jesus must walk, that and nothing else, if they are to follow him. When the other disciples hear about this, they're raging. Verse 40, they are indignant at James and John. Not because of the, the brashness of the request, not because of their arrogance. The disciples are mad at James and John because in them asking for greatness, it's excluded the rest of them. And they all want to be elevated to that status. They all want to be seen alongside this great Messiah. That's why Jesus calls them together. He says, lads, come here. I need to tell you, you've not got this. That's a paraphrase. Let's look at what he actually says. Verse 42. Jesus calls them together. He says this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. You see, James and John's request is, is antithetical to everything that Jesus teaches. And as we see, is antithetical to who Jesus is. And what's painful for me, as I read uh, almost with embarrassment, the arrogance of their request and their self-righteousness, what's painful is just how easy it is to see ourselves in these two men. They're not bad men. It's the foundation of the church right here. 
This is the creme de la creme of humanity. Look, we, may not, we may not come to Jesus. We may not come to him asking to be uh, seated at his right hand. But how many of us treat Jesus more like he's our assistant rather than our king? Jesus, this is, what, this is what I want you to do for me. I want you to help me have a comfortable life. This is what we've done to Christianity in the West. And it's crazy. We've tamed it. We've turned it into the, this comfortable middle-class religion. It has become about what we can get from it rather than what we can give. But Jesus says here that if you are a follower of him, you are a slave to everyone. We're not looking for this comfortable dream. What matters to you? What, what is it? What do you want from God? Is your priority that of sacrificial service or of comfort? Think about money. Jesus talks a lot about money. Think about how we use our money. We use it to feed our, our own comforts, or, or do we actually give it sacrificially, not just, just giving it, but do we actually give it sacrificially to help others? Could we really do what Jesus asked of the rich young man earlier in Mark 10, where he says, you've got to be willing to give up everything to follow me down this path? Think about our time as well, how we use our time. Do we use that, again, sacrificially for the needs of others, or, or is it our time? And in both these instances, we have to recognize that our money, our time, are not things that we have earned ourselves, but things that God has given us. So the great question to think about is not, how do I use the money I've earned? How do I use the time that I deserve? But how do I use the money that God has given me for his glory? And we're slaves to all. So we should be using it to serve others. And are we willing to do so in a way which won't receive recognition? See, that's what James and John want. They want to be seen. They want to be seen as being great. But if we're honest, we are, like them, so concerned with our reputation. We don't want to appear like slaves. We want to appear great and, and wise and knowledgeable as Christians. We want people to think well of us. We want the world to see how cool and how normal Christianity is. But it's not. There's nothing cool or normal about being a slave. To be a slave is to be a subject to all. To be a slave is to be at the bottom rung of the ladder regarding everyone else above yourself. It's being a loser. Being a slave is hard graft. It's unrewarding. It costs you everything. And it is at times humiliating. That means that our chief concern is not our own comfort, nor is it how we appear in the eyes of others. But our chief concern is the need of others. And what greater need is there, in light of what we were hearing this morning, what greater need is there than for people to know Jesus and his life-saving 
gospel. How are we giving our time, our money, even our reputation up for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus? I think we've also got, we've got to look at these words, verse 42, 44. We've got to take them as well and, and see how does this affect us as a church, as how we relate to each other in the church. Do we, do we come to this church to give? Or do we come to this church simply and only to receive? To receive? If there's a need in this church, and there are many, as there would be in any church, think about do you want to fill that need? Or do you want to do what you want to do? Everyone's got their own thing that they think they'd like to do. But what happens if there was a real need that needed to be done? It wasn't your thing, whatever that is. Are we willing to do that? That's what it means to serve. And it's hard. And this is subtle because I know that even for myself, even when we do serve others, we can often do it for the wrong reasons. Ironically, we can often serve so that people will think we look great. We want people to know how busy we've been. We want them to appreciate all that we have done for them. I think so many people want to serve, but how many are actually willing to be treated like a servant? I've just been challenged by this, thinking about this myself. Even just now, as somebody has to preach the word, that is, I guess, an act of service. Um, But let me tell you, when I was preparing this, this is kind of what struck me. Um, a lot of the time when I'm preparing or when I'm preaching, my concern should primarily be to teach the Bible. But I'll be honest, my concern a lot of the time is how I appear. I want to appear as somebody who's wise and knowledgeable and who helps you. And I say that to my shame because it becomes about me looking great rather than me preaching. And it is shameful because that's not how kingdom people behave. We put others above ourselves. And we mustn't ever fall into the trap that kind of uh, seeped its way into Scottish Presbyterianism. This idea that in church leadership there are some tasks that are too demeaning for the minister or the staff to do. I would say actually that the more you grow as a Christian the more like a servant you should become. The more like a slave to all you should become. We don't lord status over people. That's how the Gentiles operate. We're servants. We're slaves. Seek servant-heartedness over status. That, says Jesus, that's truly great. That's what it means to be great in Christ's kingdom. And do you know what the real irony is? Although this is, this is difficult, this is painful, this is humiliating. Imagine how humiliating it would be for Jesus, the Son of God, to deal with these two arrogant men. The irony is that this is the only way I reckon you could ever be truly free as a human being. Whoever loses their life for my sake, says Jesus, will in the end gain it. Just think about it. To be able to get on with life without having to to crave for approval or to appear great in others' eyes. 
to be able to do things for others without having to worry about your own needs or how you appear, to not be tied down by money or power or reputation, to preach a sermon without being concerned about how you look, just to share the Word of God. One writer calls this the blessed self-forgetfulness. It's humility, and it brings true contentment. To be truly liberated, we must be slaves of all. That's hard, and it's so countercultural to everything that we taught and to how we are. So <laughs> how, how do we do that? Because I reckon we fail quite a lot. How can we do that? Well, our next two points will help us. Let me ask, why is this so fundamental, first of all? Let me answer it like this. We have to be like this because this is what Jesus is like. And if Jesus wasn't like this, there would be no hope for any of us. We have to be like this because this is what Jesus is like. And if Jesus wasn't like this, there would be no hope for any of us. This is the the second point, the self-sacrificing son of man. If you want to be like this, you've got to look to Jesus. Everything that, that Jesus commands, he exemplifies in degrees that we cannot comprehend. Verse 45, this is the key verse for tonight. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Son of Man, it's another Old Testament title used about the Messiah. It's a title that Jesus often uses for himself, taken from Daniel chapter 7. Um, and Jesus is saying there that even he, as God's chosen king, who will rule over the nations, as Daniel 7 says, even he, the king of humanity, the lord of creation, the judge of the earth, even he came not to be served by us, but to serve us. If the disciples had understood their Old Testament better, they would have known this is what the Messiah would be like. Robin read to us from Isaiah 53 uh, at the start of the service. There the Messiah is described as a suffering servant. Jesus Christ, the, the only person deserving of praise and adoration, came to us not to be served, but to serve. This really is one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible. When we as human beings long for praise and greatness, it's twisted, because we're not great. Often that's, that's something that's easier to, to see in others rather than ourselves. Pride, as um, C.S. Lewis says, is, is one of those sins that we find repulsive in others, but acceptable in ourselves, such as its nature. But it's wrong. It's twisted when we exalt ourselves. We're not great. The only one who should be truly exalted is Jesus because he is the only one who is truly great. And yet he came to serve. We who, like James and John, who are so insulting sometimes with our arrogance, Jesus came to serve us. Notice how how we see this in Mark 10. We see it in the way he treats James and John doesn't rebuke them. He asks what he can do for them. We see it in how he treats the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Here is a beggar that was seen as as the lowest of the low. And when he cries out to Jesus, he's rebuked by the crowd round about him. Because the crowd is saying, he's too important to have anything to do with you. 
Jesus comes to him. Jesus crosses the barriers of social class. Jesus serves the blind beggar. I wonder if we have that same kind of unbiased attitude to help the poor and the the destitute serve those in society that would be considered weird or or strange or as outcasts, to treat them as if they were our masters. That's what Jesus does. Jesus came to serve, but his greatest act of service is not seen here, but seen when he would eventually arrive in the royal city of Jerusalem. An entrance which we'll see next week in which Jesus would not be seen as this great conquering hero arriving on a stallion, but as a humble peasant arriving on a donkey. It's just as silly back then as it would be today. And he arrives there not to overthrow the Romans, but to die on a cross. He will be mocked. He will be spat on. He will be flogged. And he will be killed. Why? For us as his ultimate act of service to us. This is what he says at the end of verse 45. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, our King, has come to deal with our biggest problem, a problem that we see here in this passage, evident in James and John, a problem that we see in ourselves. We as human beings are are by our nature to use the language of Martin Luther, curved in on ourselves. We are self-worshippers, ascribing praise that is due to our Maker, ascribing it to ourselves. And as such, we are all under the judgment and the wrath of God. We are sinners, alienated from God because of our self-righteous attitude, giving God no acknowledgement of praise. But Jesus has come to serve us by stepping into our place to to take the punishment that we deserve. Our sin means that we owe God a debt that we cannot pay. His anger for our self-righteousness is upon us all. We cannot pay it off with good deeds. We cannot provide a solution to the problem because we are the problem. But the Son of Man came to remove God's anger from us. The Son of Man came to wipe the debt, to pay off the ransom. The Son of Man came to offer up His life in place of ours. He dies the death that we should have died. He takes God's punishment for our wrongdoing so that we can be free of it. That is the ultimate act of humble service that God will show to rebellious sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, if we are struggling with this kind of selfless devotion, then focus on that truth. Do you see how, even though we muck up all the time, look at how patient Jesus is with us. Look at how he bears with us. Here we have unlimited grace. And the more you meditate about what the King has done for you, the more you'll want to be like him. You know, humility is all about thinking of yourself less. But the only way you can think of yourself less is to contemplate more of Christ. You can't just will it. Contemplate more of this Christ. Follow him on the road to the cross. It's a road that is not easy. It's 
humble service. And humble service is painful. The most humble man who ever walked the earth was crucified. But he still walked on that path because he knew that was the only way he could get us. He walked that path because he wanted to serve us. It's astonishing. Let me say something if you're here tonight and you're perhaps investigating Christianity. Or you wouldn't say you're a Christian. I wonder if this is how you thought God would be. Mark 10, 45. Is that how you view God? Is that how you thought Christians viewed God? You see, the God of religion does demand service, yet the God of the Bible offers service. And this is what he wants to do. I'd say this is what he wants to do for you here tonight. He wants to serve. And his ultimate act of service will be to pay your ransom price. Self-righteousness, you know, it can often be seen in refusing to serve. But actually, self-righteousness can be seen in refusing to accept service as well. This is the appeal of the Son of Man. Let him serve you by paying that ransom price with his own life. Mark wraps this all up with our third point. He wraps all, all, all this teaching up, all, this whole teaching on discipleship, really, that began way back in chapter 8, with the exemplary son of Timaeus. That's the third point. The exemplary son of Timaeus, shown in verse 46 to 52. Mark, uh, Bartimaeus um, is to be viewed uh, as an example of how to follow Jesus. Mark began his teaching on discipleship, Mark 8:22 with a blind man seeing who Jesus was, and he ends it here in Mark 10, with a blind man seeing who Jesus is. We who fail to live like kingdom people, let's look to Bartimaeus. I love the fact it's Bartimaeus. Notice what Mark does. Notice how he contrasts Bartimaeus with James and John. So both James and John and Bartimaeus, both of them have a correct understanding of Jesus to some degree. They both understand that Jesus is the Christ. So James and John want to be with him in glory because they think he's the Christ. Bartimaeus cries out to him, son of David. That's a kingly title. David was the great Old Testament king. Bartimaeus is saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of David. Both are also asked by Jesus the same question. What do you want me to do for you? That question we talked about at the start. But notice the differences. James and John come to Jesus saying, we want you to do something for us. What does Bartimaeus do? He cries out for mercy. Verse 47, Son of David, have mercy upon me. One's an an arrogant request of self-righteousness and the other is a humble acknowledgement of need. In their response to Jesus' question, James and John ask for something that that will make them look good. But Bartimaeus asks simply to see. One commentator on this says that James and John desire to be superhuman. Bartimaeus desires to be simply human. Also, Bartimaeus' response to Jesus seems to show that he has a greater understanding of what it means to call Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, we're starting a series on Isaiah, which will run in tandem with our Mark series, which is great, because Isaiah is all about the prophecies of this Christ, this King that will come. 
and marks about the fulfillment of those prophecies. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah writes that the Messiah will come and he will open the eyes of the blind. That will be one of his distinguishing features. But there is nothing in Isaiah about the Messiah elevating his followers up to the same level and the same status as him. So James and John are asking for something for themselves, whereas Bartimaeus is simply asking Jesus to do what was promised of him. He's asking Jesus to do something that's in line with his identity. James and John are not. Now Mark's a a wonderfully subtle writer. And there's something more, I think, about Bartimaeus' request. It's not just physical sight that he has, but Bartimaeus has spiritual insight. He asks to see Jesus. The disciples, they don't quite see who Jesus is. Bartimaeus does. That's that's the irony here. The blind man has a clearer picture of who Jesus is than the disciples do. He is, for Mark, one of the many examples of faith, a dominant theme in this gospel. Poor, destitute, and yet he sees more clearly than Jesus' closest followers. And notice what Bartimaeus does at the end of the passage. Verse 52 Immediately he recovered his sight. What does he do? He follows Jesus on the way. He follows Jesus down the road. That road, which we've been saying is the road to the cross, cries for mercy to Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He wants to see Jesus clearly. And when he does, with the eyes of faith, he follows Jesus down that path that leads to the cross. That is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if we're struggling to be humble servants, let's do what Bartimaeus does. Humbly come before the king. Ask him for help. Ask Jesus for mercy. Jesus, we are failing. Please help us to be like you. Help us to see who you really are as the crucified Christ, as the servant king, as the suffering saviour. Help us to walk the path of the cross. Help us to serve. Help us to give up our whole lives for your sake. And let Jesus serve you in giving you mercy and in giving you forgiveness. Don't shrug it off because you feel too far gone as if the service of the Son of Man was not enough to redeem us. Bartimaeus, he he doesn't want wealth. He doesn't want power, success, fame, or glory. He could have asked Jesus for any of those things. He just wants to see. He remains poor. He remains clothed in rags. You know why Mark probably puts his name here and calls him the son of Timaeus? Because he would have been a member of the early church. People would have known Bartimaeus. And that poor beggar is the model disciple who follows Jesus on the path. Not the rich young ruler, earlier in Mark 10. In our eyes, he would have been a better guy to have on your team. He could have funded loads of church plants. But it's not him. It's blind Bartimaeus, the beggar. So let me close by asking the question posed at the start. What is it you want God to do for you? What do you want God to do for you? 
Have you got all these problems that you want him to fix? Have you got certain desires that if he fulfilled would make your life so much easier? And it's not wrong to pray to God to help you through your problems and your issues. But fundamentally, what do we want from God? Comfort, ease in life? Or do you simply want to see more of Jesus and walk the path of humble service that is the path of the cross, a painful path, but a liberating one. That really should be at the heart of those who are part of the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, help us to humbly come to you now. Father, that is what we do as a church. We come before you acknowledging that we are sinful, that we are not great. Acknowledging that we need you and we need to see you better. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us for the times in our life where we do not follow your example. Forgive us for how we do not live as kingdom people, marked with humility, marked with that servant-hearted nature that Jesus, you so perfectly displayed to us. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to, to draw in deeper who you are, and to have that desire to be like you, to live like our King, and to serve others, knowing that it may be painful, knowing that it may be humiliating, know that it could cost us our time, it could cost us our money, it could cost us our reputation, but may we give it all up for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his gospel, so that others may come and have that ransom price paid, so that others may come and be served by the Christ and be brought into eternal life. Lord, that is our heart's desire. It's challenging to live like this, so help us to do that. In your mercy and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.